If you have your bullets and I want you to turn it over, this is one of those Sundays where I want to point to who we are as a church, our mission and vision statement here. And right on the back, we have our mission, which is basically our understanding of the Great Commission, just sort of a restatement of it. Um, Our mission is leading people, actually it's on the front, leading people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, And then on the back, we have a particularization of that, our vision. How do we go about that? We envision a caring community that equips the whole family, and we mean the whole family of God, to follow Jesus. That's what we're after as a church. And um, particularly our mission statement where it says, leading people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, that does not just mean those who already have crossed the line of faith and would identify as Christians. We mean those who are, I'll call you, pre-Christians. Some of you are sitting here and you are skeptical of Christianity, or you're investigating, you're not sure, you got drugged here against your will, it's your mom's birthday, so you're here, whatever. You're here, and you may have questions, you may be skeptical, and I want to say, welcome, and I'm truly, truly glad that you are here and that you are investigating uh, the faith. And I want to say that Bethel Church, I desire to be a place that would be safe for that kind of exploration and investigation. Um, I, I think about myself. I was blessed to grow up in a missionary home. I came to know Christ early. I went to a Christian school, went to a Christian college. I've been in ministry ever since. But I want to say this. I, if I hadn't had that background, I believe I would have been quite the skeptic. That's my nature. Uh, I believe I would have had tons of questions, and it would have taken anybody and probably lots of people a long time to share the gospel with me and to sort of bring me uh, uh, to a place of belief. And so I genuinely uh, appreciate fair questions uh, from skeptics or from those who are exploring the faith. And I would just say it is no small thing to become a Christian. It's not just adding a byline to your your bio or to your Instagram page or something like that. It is a monumental reorientation of your life. And such a remarkable change would naturally have questions, good, serious questions that you would explore over time. And hopefully you would find good, reasonable, satisfying answers. That being said, there are some times that skeptics or those who are investigating the faith go about it in a way that can be frustrating. In other words, sometimes those exploring the Christian faith can sort of be unfair in the nature of their questioning. Sometimes they come with biases and sort of uh, automatically precluded certain reasonable answers to questions. They're sort of closed to them. And I want to challenge that a little bit this morning. I had an encounter years ago with a fellow. This is more than a decade ago. But a fellow came to church one morning, and we were in uh, the book of Genesis, and I was preaching through creation. And afterwards, he cornered me out here in the foyer, and he said, you don't really believe this, do you? You sound like you're a reasonable guy. How can you possibly believe some of these things? And so I answered that question, and then the next question, and then the next question. And finally, I got to a place where I was like, this guy just has questions and doubts on everything. And I kind of got tired of being the punching bag. And so I just flipped it over, and I asked him this question, and this is what I want to pose to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
So you can be a skeptic. You can have struggles about the gospel proclamation or about what it says. You can, you can doubt him as God's savior sent to the world to atone for man's sin, okay? I understand doubts and questions. That's fine. But you, the skeptic, have to answer the question, who is this Jesus? If he's not this, then what was he? Because you can't discount him altogether. To say that he didn't exist at all is to sort of be on par with, you know, denying the Holocaust or the moon landing or being a flat earther. You just can't say that. He's an historical figure. Who do you say that he was? And by the way, Christians, that's a good and generous question that you can ask to those that you're having gospel conversations with. That's even a good starter. Hey, I'm curious, what conclusions have you come to about Jesus? What's, what's your opinion on him? Who do you think he was? And that might just be the starter question. Uh, but here's another, so that's one objection we run into. Another objection we can run into uh, from skeptics at time is, is something like this. Uh, I can't believe in Jesus as the Savior of mankind because of the Bible's frequent mention of miracles and healings and angels and resurrections. And, you know, these things just don't happen. And so I can't buy that. I just can't believe that. To which I would say, you know, honestly, that's not very scientific of you then. Um, you're kind of not playing by your own rules. Uh, you are rejecting sort of a whole body of data and evidence simply because it doesn't meet with your preconceived biases. The scientific method is an exploration of data and results wherever they might lead you, and you have to be intellectually honest about that. If you're going to deny a whole lane of, of data out of hand because of a preconceived bias, you're kind of living in a closed system in which God couldn't ever enter. So you've sort of made an a priori commitment against God. It's not very scientific of you or intellectually honest. Uh, a third objection sometimes you run into, and I actually love it when I hear this one. When somebody says, it's, we call it the problem of evil. How can there be a God? There's evil in the world. If there is a God who is good and holy and powerful, why wouldn't he do something about this? And that is a big, fat toss right across the middle of the plate. Good question. In fact, I would claim that he has. So let's think of the options available to a hypothetical God. He could just eradicate all evil everywhere all at once. Would that be good? And the person might say, yes. And you might say, think hard. Because <laughs> where would you be in that construct? Eradicated. Okay. So what might be better than that? And wonderfully, the God, here I just want to say at the shorthand, the gospel is God's answer to the problem of evil. He says, I will wipe it all out one day. But I don't want you to bear that, the brunt of that. I want you to be forgiven and reconciled and in right relationship to me and living into the full humanity that you were meant for, which is exemplified in Jesus this is what we want for you. So here's what you need to do. Let's deal with the problem of evil through repentance and faith, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God to make us like Christ as we were meant to be so that evil would slowly and, and progressively be sanctified in our life and taken out of it and that God would come back one day justly restoring everything the way it ought to be and that it will be good and God will be just and he will have been gracious and he will have been loving. The gospel is God's answer to the problem of evil. So when someone throws that one at you, 
Roll up your sleeves and get to work, okay? This brings us really to the question or to our main subject this morning uh, as we shift to the Apostles' Creed. I'm, I'm setting this up here. Last week we looked at the first line. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we return now to the creed and look at the second person of the triune Godhead. We've been trying to show you how this is Trinitarian. It starts with the Father, and then the middle section deals with the Son, and the last section with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so our line today is this, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And that's as far as we're going to go today. And broadly what I want to highlight in, in this part of the creed, in this stanza, are two aspects. One, the ruling nature of Jesus. And secondly, the representative role of Jesus. So we'll start with this ruling nature here. And I want to draw your attention to the fact uh, that, that sort of all of these introductory parts, these three that we'll look through here, they all have to do with Jesus' inherent right to rule by virtue of who he is eternally and by virtue of who he is incarnationally. So when we see this phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, right? And in Jesus Christ, first of all, when we say Jesus Christ, we are, it's not like we're saying first name Jesus, last name Christ, right? You know this, I hope. Um, in fact, one uh, theologian, Alistair McGrath, uh, kind of said, I thought it was humorous, he said, we really ought to write it as Jesus the Christ to make sure we get this right and don't fall into it. But, but first of all, we recognize that the name Jesus is given to the eternal son at the time that he is born to marry, right? It is given. It may sound funny to say this, and I'm going to say this carefully, um, Jesus, as he is named, did not always exist. Now, I hope your heresy hackles just went off right now. What do you mean by that, Eric? The second person of the Trinity, right? God the Son, the Word, has existed from eternity past. But at his incarnation, he is given the name Jesus. And he is given also a human nature. So he is fully God and fully man. Not half God, not half man fully God, and fully man. Um, and this is sort of captured for us in one of the most beautiful, succinct, and mysterious verses in all of the scripture, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Interestingly, the name that is given to him uh, by Joseph and by Mary, the name given to him uh, was assigned by the Father. The angel announced, this is what you will call him. And the meaning of the name is significant. Listen to this. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means literally God saves. And this makes clear 
God's intention for this Savior, this one, to be born, that he would rescue humanity from their sin. In other words, this isn't some role that was conferred upon him later by the apostles or by others or church, you know, church leaders. Even from his birth, it is clear the role that God had intended for him. Uh, secondly, the title Christ here, uh, again, this is not the last name uh, of Jesus. It's not his surname like Smith or Clark, right? But in fact, Christ or the Christ speaks to his office. It speaks to a role, to a function that he steps into. Christ means anointed one. It is highlighting the kingship of Jesus. It anticipates a specific role of one who was promised not only to redeem, but also to rule. It points to his kingship. So just in the name Jesus the Christ, we have this reference to Israel's long-expected Savior King. And that makes me a little more sympathetic of the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Some of you are like, please no, we did Acts. We did that for like 10 months. We're good, right? <laughs> Tough. Acts chapter 1. <laughs> they come up to him and say, is it now at this time that you're going to establish your kingdom? And we mock that. We laugh at it and say, come on, disciples, get it together. You know, what's wrong with you? It's a very reasonable question when you understand Israel's expectation of Messiah, a Savior who would come and one who would rule. The problem from them is they did not comprehend the magnitude of rescue that God had planned. They thought the anointed one was going to simply come and rescue the nation of Israel from the oppression of Rome. But God had sent his son to rescue mankind from the devastation of sin. A magnitude greater than they were even able to imagine just yet. The second sort of ascription given here, his only son. His only son. I don't know what comes to your mind, but I suspect if you're like me, you hear only son, you might think only child. Or you might think of sort of your relationship with, with your son. Uh, that's what comes to mind for me, and I think probably for most Western readers, we sort of think of the familial, relational uh, uh, relationship that we have with our, with our sons. Uh, we might think of sort of a father's delight. I'm having a son. Oh, I can't wait to teach him fill in the gap. I can't wait to teach him how to fish the right way with a fly rod, not a spinning rod, right? <laughs> I can't wait to go hunting with him. Uh, I can't wait to teach my son how to work hard and to work well. We want to teach our sons how to lean into the inherent strength that God has given them for the care and service and protection of others. By the way, that's my definition of masculinity, and I want to say that right now because it's missing in our world right now. Somehow masculinity has either become toxic or non-existent, and nobody seems to be affirming what it actually is. And I'm going to say it's using one's God-given inherent strength to serve, to care for, and to protect others. I think that's the shorthand definition of masculinity. And we want to teach our sons that. And we want to teach them that that's a good thing and to lean into that. We want to teach our sons the importance of finding a good and godly woman and caring for her rightly. She is the daughter of the king and being loyal to her and keeping covenant to her. 
So when we think about sonship, I think we tend to think about all this relationship and this affection and closeness. And there absolutely is that between God the Father and God the Son. We see it right at the baptism of Jesus, right? When the voice from heaven says, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Guys, do you remember your dad ever saying that of you? And if he, if he did, if he did, if you were lucky enough to have a dad who would say that to you. How did that feel, right? And this is what the father says of the son. So that affection is definitely there. But there is a greater significance to Christ's sonship to the father. And that is his claim of equality with God. Making himself out to be God. In fact, it was for that reason that the Jews got angry with him and tried to kill him. John 5.16 says this. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, we'll say snacking and working, okay, which go hand in hand, but because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the sonship of Jesus is a claim of equality with the father. It's not just that they have this familial closeness. It's that the son has divine authority. And the third description we see here, our Lord. If sonship is a claim to divine authority that Jesus possesses, more than that, then, it is a claim, a rightful claim of authority that he has over us. He is Lord. And I will say, I think this is probably the most difficult thing for our culture right now to accept about God. That is his lordship. In other words, he's God, as my predecessor would say, he's God, you're not. And as I would add to that, you weren't even nominated. You know, your name didn't even come up. It wasn't even discussed, right? To say that one is Lord is to say that they have an authority over your life. And our current culture doesn't want anyone to have any authority over themselves except the autonomous self. The deification of self is one of the greatest evils of our present age. We look to ourselves as Savior and not to the God who can truly save. But Jesus is Lord. Now, this isn't a problem only now. It was a problem way back in the 4th century when Augustine got it right. St. Augustine says, God being God offends human pride. Yeah. The scriptures also say, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. This is the early proclamation of Peter at Pentecost, right? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the most succinct summary of the gospel ever articulated three words. You want to hear it? Jesus is Lord. 
That was the early proclamation of the church, of both Peter and Paul. Do you guys remember that um, there was, used to be an old TV show, kind of a, a game show. It was called Name That Tune. Anybody want to claim to be that old, you know, along with me? Two people. I got two courageous. Let's go to lunch after. How about, yeah? I like you guys. And it was something along the lines of, here's the genre, here's the artist, and how many notes can you name this song? And someone would say, I can name that tune in seven notes. And the next person would come back and go, I can do it in five notes, and back and forth. I remember watching it one time, and somebody dared to say, I can name that tune in one note. You're like, come on, you know, how could you possibly? And they got it, (laughs) which of course is just random chance, but the gospel in three notes Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Within that phrase, there is an affirmation of all of the truth and significance of the gospel. It's funny, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the gospel, the long version. You know, we could do that starting in Genesis. Well, God made everything. Man sinned and rebelled. Sin nature was inherited by everybody. God established a law to show his righteousness, our sinfulness, and a sacrificial system to show that we could come to him for forgiveness, introducing the Savior to come. Then we have prophecy, which tells us about him, so we might recognize him. And then Jesus comes. And he lives a perfect life, and he dies a sacrificial death, and he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he's coming back to judge, and he wants us to be with him. Well, there's the gospel, the long version, right? Okay, and we love this. We could do the gospel, the short version, in one verse. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's one verse, short version. This is the gospel, the nano version. (laughs) Three notes. Jesus is Lord. This is what Peter preached at Pentecost. It's also what Paul declared in the great incarnation passage of Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what I want to show you in these first three ascriptions here is, is to highlight the rulership of Jesus. We're confronted with this fact that he is altogether King Jesus. The Christian faith affirms more than that Jesus was simply a mild-mannered miracle worker or a good-natured teacher. He is our Savior. He is King. He is God in the flesh. So the first part of the creedal statement here, the rulership of Jesus, we see the deity that he possesses, the royalty he claims as King Jesus, his sonship showing equality with God, his lordship over our lives. And now we come to the hinge of what the creed says about Jesus. That is, he does not just possess these attributes on high, but he uses them to reconcile sinful mankind to a holy God. So from his identity, we see his ministry. Philippians 2, again, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, right? Or just grasped, held onto, hoarded, just for me, not for you. No, he puts it in, at work for us. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so this is the second part uh, of, our, of our statement here. We see the representative nature of Jesus. That is, he uses his strength 
for the care and protection and service of others. Uh, Karl Barth, uh, old theologian, summarized this really well, summarized the incarnation with this very short phrase, God for man, man for God. This is the representative role that Jesus serves in. So to preserve this, first of all, we have this phrase, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And you might ask, why is that that important? Well, it's hugely important. If Jesus is conceived simply by an ordinary human male and an ordinary human female, then Jesus would just be an ordinary human. And he would possess only a human nature. But being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, Jesus uh, is a person with two natures. One person, two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Fully God, fully man. Why is that important? So that in his humanity, he can act as our representative. But in his deity... His sacrifice is of infinite worth to cover the sins of mankind. He must be both. And that's what this statement preserves. Galatians 4.4 says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So here we see, God for man, man for God. These two natures at used for our redemption and reconciliation. And this really protected the early church and the church today, but really protected the early church from two heresies that were emerging at the time. Sort of in the second to fourth century, these were popular. The first was known as adoptionism. And essentially, this was the claim that Jesus was just an ordinary human being, born like everybody else, just an ordinary human, that's all. But at his baptism, God adopted him. So the line, uh, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, is an act of adopting him, and then Jesus sort of becomes God's servant. You see any problem with that? He has absolutely no value to save us. He's just a guy who gets us. Right? But no deity there. The other sort of common uh, heresy of the day was known as docetism. And we dealt with this a while back, if you remember when we went through uh, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This was part of what was happening there at the time, where some were declaring that Jesus was absolutely divine, but he wasn't truly human. He didn't have any matter or material to him. He was sort of ghost-like. He just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't actually a man. In fact, they believed that because in their viewpoint, all matter was evil. Therefore, God couldn't have matter about him or he would therefore be evil. And so one denies his deity, one denies his humanity. Both are absolutely wrong. And so conceived by the Holy Spirit helps to preserve this along with the second or this last line here, which is this, born of the Virgin Mary. Here, what this preserves is the humanity of Christ. That is, he was really born. Really here. Not just a story or a theory or a figment. It also presents Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that salvation would come through the seed of the woman. Beautifully. Um, 
There are two unfortunate outcomes of, of this particular phrase, uh, the virgin birth, and I'll just hit, quickly hit each of them. The first is this, Mariology. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church sees this statement of Mary and chooses then to venerate her or worship her. This passage is not about Mary, it's about Jesus. That's who's looking to be honored here. So that's one unfortunate outcome of it. The second one uh, is this, and I don't quite understand this. Some people will say, virgin birth, that doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen. Therefore, I can't believe it. And to that, I kind of want to go, why is it this miracle that's too much to believe? Because Christianity has asserted many miracles well before this, right? In fact, one theologian wrote it this way, if miracle is rejected, then nothing nothing important in Christianity can be retained. And this brings us back to our opening. The Christian faith is filled with miracles. It is filled with the supernatural. It is as though God enters into this world. If we have a closed box to say that such things can't happen, could we ever even possibly have a God? We can't close that system down. We have to be open to where the evidence leads. And the evidence of Jesus Christ leads us to believe in miracles, as does all of the scriptures. The Christian faith starts with creation, ex nihilo, spoken to plagues, to the parting of the sea, the miraculous provision of food, turning bitter water into sweet. I'm only up to like Exodus here. (laughs) To healings, exorcisms, the virgin birth, the raising of the dead, the resurrection of Christ, the inspiration of scripture, and on and on and on. In other words, if we're going to look at the world and say, you know, there's problems, and you you think God would do something about it, then we're going to have to allow God to enter the world in the way that he chooses. And he has, and Jesus, and the gospel of salvation is God's answer to the problem of evil. If you're a skeptic, if you're exploring Christianity, I want to tell you, the storyline holds up. The goods are there. The scripture does not shy away from investigation. God invites it, and I have every confidence that he wants to lead you to himself. So I'm going to pray, and uh, I'm going to ask, if you're here this morning, and you've been exploring Christianity and wondering, can I believe this? I'm going to call you to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith this morning. So would you bow with me? Lord, thank you that you have dealt with the problem of this world, and the main problem that we find, which is sin. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that if you're a good God who is going to eradicate sin, then I'm in trouble. I acknowledge that you've given Christ to be the sacrifice for my sin. I receive it, receive his sacrifice on my part, repenting of it, and I want to live into the fullness of humanity that he now shows us. So I ask that Jesus would be my Savior and Lord. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel. Every time we turn a page of scripture, we're reading another word, another paragraph that shows us how good and gracious you have been to us sinners. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.